The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Good morning. I'd like you to turn with me to uh, Philippians chapter 4. We're in the last chapter of this little letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. He's writing from prison. And this church is very, very important to him. He has encouraged them about the fact in chapter one that they should live their lives in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. In other words, they ought to live and carry out their Christian life in a way that would honor Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in the last two chapters, he's talking about those things we need to be leery of that are going to, can can cause the church to have huge problems in fulfilling our mission. I'd like to make something uh, really uh, clear that the Bible talks about, and that is that the church of Jesus Christ is manifest in local churches like this. We are about, it's probably surprising to you, but we're about an average-sized church. This is the average church in America is, a, is less than 100 people. And, uh, but, but the thing about the church is this, that when God puts a local church together, we are in community together as a family, and we are on mission. We have a mission. And that mission, of course, is to make disciples, to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to live in such a way that that takes place through our fellowship. I took a class one time up at New College in Berkeley, and we had a a teacher there that was pretty fairly well known. His name was James Sire. He wrote a book called The Universe Next Door. And in this book, what he's talking about is the fact that everybody you speak to is living in a different universe in this sense. They have a different worldview, especially people from other cultures. And that we have to recognize that, and what we need to show them by demonstration of our community, our relationships with each other, is that we believe the gospel, and we live the gospel. It isn't just we're propagating some religious teaching. We are communicating the truth of a wonderful good news that God has given us to, to communicate to people. One of the things he said in this, this class, this was many, many years ago, but I still remember it. There were all, it was up next to University of California in Berkeley. And on the street there at that time, there were several preachers preaching, yelling is what they were doing. They were screaming at the top of their lungs on a street corner. And he said, if you really want to have impact on people, like in this context here, the best thing to do is to get them out of that context, out of that atmosphere, and get them among some believers. Get them with some fellow Christians. And as a community, we share the gospel. One of the things the Bible teaches very clearly is that a local church, among other things, is a gospel team. That is that we are bound together because God has placed us together and because we have believed the same gospel and we have a responsibility to be communicators of that gospel as a community in our life together. And so one of the best things you can do is get an unbeliever in the context of a group, a small group, large group of believers where we can talk to them about the gospel as a group of people. Some of us are so worried about being able to say the gospel in just the precise, exact manner that we never even speak about it. We keep our mouths shut, especially if there's somebody there that we think knows how to communicate it better than we do. But the fact is, we as a group have been called to communicate the gospel in community. We, do the, we live the Christian life in community, and we communicate the gospel in community. And this is why Paul wants to get this across to this group of people, the church at Philippi. I want to read you the first nine verses of chapter four. This is what we're going to look at today. And he's talking about some roadblocks, some things that can weaken the gospel team and make it ineffective. Listen to what he says. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. And we saw last week that meant that we ought to have the right mindset We ought to seek to follow the pattern of those who are walking with Christ, and we need to live in hope of the coming of Christ. We sang about heaven today. I'd like to clarify just one thing. We look forward to heaven because if the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that if you die, immediately you'll be in the presence of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But that's not our permanent home. 
Our permanent home is going to be when heaven comes to earth. That's why it's called the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom from heaven. It's going to come and be here on this earth, and we're going to live with Christ and the Father and the Spirit on a renewed and restored earth as human beings who have been saved by the grace of God. And so he says, and notice in verse 2, and here's the first roadblock to the effectiveness of the gospel team in Philippi. He says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche. Those are two ladies' names. If you want to name your girl something Syntyche, wouldn't that be beautiful? (laughs) Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. The implication is they're fighting. These two women are fighting with each other, but listen to what he goes on to say about them. He says, indeed, true companion, that is, yoke fellow, one who has worked with me, we don't know who that is. He doesn't name him unless that is his name, but the, the Greek word sounds very strange. You wouldn't expect anybody to be named by that name. He says, indeed, true companion, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. These were part of my team as I brought the gospel to Philippi. And now they're, they're fighting one another. There's been a rift. There's been an alienation that's taken place. And I want you to see to it that they are reconciled. Why? Because the church of Jesus Christ, the local church, cannot be effective in bearing witness of Christ unless we are at peace with each other. It's absolutely impossible if there are battles going on between believers that we could be effective in working together. And so he wants them to see them reconciled. And then he says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit. In other words, I don't always have to have my way. That's what that means. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. This is literally a Maranatha. You've all heard that. Maranatha is two words that means Let the Lord come. May the Lord come. The Lord is near. And so what he's saying is, hey, don't don't be stubborn about always having your way. Jesus could come back today and ruin all your plans. So don't demand that you get everything done the way you want it to be done. Be at peace with your fellow team members in the gospel. He says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplications and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren. And when Paul says finally, he doesn't mean this is the end of the sermon. He just means now for the rest. I'm going to tell you something else. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. He's going to deal with three things. He's going to deal with anxiety, and then these conflicting mindsets, and first of all, he's going to deal with conflict in verses two and four. So that's what we're going to look at first, conflict in the body of Christ, conflict in a local church, because every single local church that truly is Christ-centered, that is, that is centered around, their life is centered around Christ, they are a gospel team. doesn't matter what size they are, where, what location they are in the world, they are a gospel team. We are a gospel team. We may not be good at it, but that's what we are. One of the things that kind of confuses people at times is that this is how the Bible does, totally different than the world. The Bible always starts with what you already are, and then it tells you how you ought to live. It doesn't start with live like this, and then this is what you will be. It says this is what you are, and therefore you should live like this. Does that make sense? Because uh, sometimes we don't want to think of fellow believers as saints, But that's what the Bible calls us. Saints set apart to Christ. That's what it means. And we're all saints. What about about if I'm really failing a lot in my Christian life? What if I keep tripping up on the same thing over and over and over again? You're still a saint. Now you're maybe a disobedient saint and God will deal with us as a good father would. He is the best father. 
But that doesn't mean you're no longer a saint. You are a follower of Jesus Christ. We are a local church that is a gospel team. Whether we are doing a good job of communicating the gospel and making disciples or not, that's who we are. We are in community together, and therefore there should not be conflict. And also, we are on mission, and therefore there should, should not be conflict, because we're on mission to communicate the gospel to the world. And the world, in our context, is the people around us. Who is it in your path every day? Who, is, who are the people in your path that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, the best place and the best way to communicate that to them, to communicate the gospel, is get them, have them come with you to be with some other believers and openly talk about Jesus Christ and about what he's done in your lives. That's, that's the best place to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what that does is it motivates us to say, you know what, I want to be living in such a way that I could tell the truth and say, he's made all the difference in the world in my life. Following Jesus Christ is the best thing that has ever happened to me. There's nothing that can compare. If I can't say that with honesty, then I need to repent, don't I? I need to begin to experience the power of the Spirit. I was thinking about this this past week, about uh, if somebody was to ask you, how do I walk in the Spirit? What kind of instruction would you give them? What, what we'd like to have is like a three-step process, huh? You know, there are, there are people who've come up with this, this little formula for being filled with the Spirit, um, and they get it out of Romans 6. Know, reckon, and yield. That's not what Romans 6 is saying. We're just told to be filled with the Spirit instead of being filled with something else. That is to, where do we find our fullness? Where do I find something in my life that makes me feel like I have everything I need? The Holy Spirit. Now, here's here's what he wants you to know is you have to find out who you are in Christ before you can be filled with the Spirit because it doesn't make any sense until you do that. And this is what the Bible says. You have the Holy Spirit living in you if you have put faith in Christ. Every believer has the Holy Spirit according to Romans 8, verses 9 and 10 and many other passages in Scripture. The Holy Spirit is the one who gave you faith. The Holy Spirit is the one who worked in you to be willing and to be doing of his good pleasure. And the Holy Spirit abides in you. He lives in you. And so Paul says we, should, we are to walk in the Spirit. In fact, he says that's who we are characteristically. We are those who walk in the Spirit. And all that means is I literally look to the Spirit to give me life and purpose in life. I'm not looking outside of him to something else. That, and I'm talking as though I do it perfectly. I don't, but I'm, I'm speaking to, to convince you that this is how we are to live, is that we are to look to the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, who abides in us, and who has the power to en- enable us and to motivate us to walk with Christ and bear witness to Jesus Christ. We have to look to him. And we don't have to look saying, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. I don't know if you've ever saw the... Uh, Fuller Brush Man movie, and it was Red Buttons, I think. Was that who it was? Or Red Skelton? And he knocked on the door. He would knock on the door, and then he would say, nobody's home, I hope, I hope, I hope. And that's how we are. It's like, uh, I'd like to bear witness. I sure hope nobody asked me about Christ. That's because we've forgotten something, who we are. And I have to be convinced of who I am through the Word of God. It's the testimony of God. This is how it always is in the Bible. He tells us who we are, and then he tells us how we ought to live. All you got to do is look at the book of Ephesians, for example, first three chapters. It's telling you who you are, what God has done for you. And then he begins to tell you how you ought to live. And you, you live the way you're supposed to live because you know who you are. People who are not walking in the Spirit are not walking in the Spirit because they are not counting it to be true what the Bible says about them. It may be they don't even know what the Bible says. But the Word of God says that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. That God has given you everything you need to be fruitful in life for Christ. And he wants you to know that and then to count it to be true. In fact, Paul puts it this way in Romans 6. He says, 
Stop presenting yourself to sin as a master. Consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. And therefore, stop presenting yourself to sin as your master, but present yourself to God. I'm here to serve you. Father, I live to serve you. I had a thing happen a couple weeks ago. I was praying with somebody, and they told me that for the first time in their life, they're going through a great trial, and they said, as they were praying the other day, the first time in their life they were able to say, not my will, but your will be done, because there was so much suffering going on. That really struck my heart. And I woke up to the fact that I usually pray, although I don't verbalize it, not your will, but my will be done. I mean, isn't that what prayer is for? For God to get God to do what you want him to do? Isn't that what he is, is a dispensing machine? And you gotta learn the trick of getting him to give you what you want? No, it's not. It's to commune with your father, expressing faith in what he has said about who you are. And therefore, I, li- I am to live based upon my identity in Christ, who I am really in Christ Jesus. Now, he deals, first of all, with this, this matter of conflict in verses two through four, and he tells us who these women are, Euodia and Syntyche. Both have been co-workers with Paul in the gospel. And the issue he's dealing with is they should live in harmony. And that's that word we talked about before. It's having the same mindset, the same way of looking at reality. In other words, I'm your servant, and if I start acting like your boss, then I don't have a biblical Christ-like mindset. I've got the wrong mindset. The mindset I'm supposed to have in relationship to every other believer is the mindset of Jesus Christ, who although he was in the form of God, he didn't think manifesting the fact that he was equal with God to be something he had to grab and hang on to, but he empties himself and takes on the role of a servant. And that's what he's called us to do, that we are here to serve each other. And so that's what he's saying to them, that they have to live in harmony. They have to have the same mindset. This is really important. In fact, he calls on someone in the church in Philippi who he uses a word that's actually yoke fellow. But the, the word, it could be a personal name, but it's probably not. It's, this is how it's pronounced, Zudzuge. How would you like to be named that? So it's probably, it's, it means yoke fell, and he's probably just right, he's mentioning somebody, and they know who he's talking about. And he says, I want you to intercede with these women, and I want you to talk to them. Now, Paul understands that there is a connection between peace and joy. You know what I mean by that? If you're not at peace with fellow believers, you're not going to have joy. Let me prove this to you. Uh, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 15, it's, Paul writes to the, Philippians, to the Galatians, rather, and he says, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Well, that sounds barbaric, doesn't it? You ever have anybody chew on you? You know, somebody's just always bad-mouthing you to everybody? And then he says this in the chapter before, of Galatians, he says, where then is that sense of joy that you had when I first came to you? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. This is why we assume that his problem when he was in Galatia was he had problems with his eyes. Maybe he had malaria and it was affecting his vision. And he says, at that time, you were so glad to see me as I brought the gospel to you that you would have done anything for me and now you're angry with me. What happened to your joy? Well, it was because they lacked peace that they lacked joy because they were biting and devouring each other. You've probably heard stories before about people who like to go to church business meetings because they like to watch the fight. And you don't have to pay for it. It's free. Isn't it amazing how we can be? But that's not who we are. You see, we are a gospel team. And uh, what we want to do is to be together as a gospel team and be willing to bear witness to the reality of who Christ is in our lives and who he is as revealed in the word of God. The next thing he deals with is something that I am very familiar with. It's anxiety. I think it was John 
Ordberg who said, uh, anxiety is kind of like carrying an alarm clock around in your pocket. Uh, have you ever wondered why they call it an alarm clock? It's supposed to alarm you. It's supposed to wake you up, you know, shake you. And so you, uh-oh, I forgot all about it. I got to be down here in just five minutes. Anxiety is, is terrible. It, it actually means to have a divided mind. It means I can't get my mind out of the, off of this thing that I'm facing in three days. I, uh, I told you before that I'd gotten this subpoena to be on a grand jury in San Francisco. And so I was on call for two weeks. I had to call in every evening and check in to see if I had to show up the next morning. And uh, I actually thought about praying that God would deliver me from that. But then I thought, that is so petty. What if God had an appointment for you to, bear, to share the gospel with somebody? And so I didn't pray that. And it was because I heard that from this believer that could finally pray, not my will, but your will be done. So I just left it up to God. And God decided that I never did have to go serve. They let me off every single day, 10 days in a row. You see, anxiety is something that can eat our lunch. I got a letter the other day that said, uh, it was from something, what's the name of this thing? Uh, uh, Comply Right is the name of this company. And they said, our information was compromised and your information is on our website from some taxes, some tax preparation in the past and your social security number and 1099s and things like that. And so you need to call up these organizations and we'll give you a year's free service, but then you'll have to pay after that. It kind of sounded like a marketing device, didn't it? I actually called my, the guy that does my tax preparation. He says, no, your information wasn't uh, compromised. Don't worry about it. That's just a scam. But I did worry about it. When I worry about something, I wake up at 2.30 in the morning. That's when things are most vivid. Sometimes God has awakened me at that time to get me to, to uh, turn my attention towards him. But worry is terrible. It just, it divides you. And we can worry about all kinds of stuff, can't we? It's, it is my greatest fault. I would say it's the, my besetting sin is worry. Anxiety. But this is what Jesus said. Which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And then he told his disciples before his resurrection, and he told them that they were going to be harassed when he left. And he says this to them, but when, you hand, when they hand you over, that is when they arrest you and hand you over to authorities, he says, don't worry about what you're going to say. That's the word worry. Don't be anxious about what you're going to say. For it will be given to you at that hour what you are to say. In other words, anxiety is when I just can't trust God to fulfill his promises to me about the future. It's always about the future. I think the best illustration of worry is anxiety is uh, you know, going down the highway in the desert and you notice that your light has come on, that you're real low on fuel, and then you see a sign that says next gas 150 miles. You know how that feels? That's anxiety. That's, that's like your mind is divided because you're worried about what's going to happen. And the common source, they they say this is the most common source of anxiety is relational conflict. This is what will keep you up most at night, is knowing that you have a relational conflict with somebody and you're wondering how you're ever going to solve it. How can you ever make peace? Now, the Bible says that we should be, as much as lies within us, we should be at peace with all men. You know, there are some conflicts that take place some alienations that take place, some offenses that take place that you can't do anything about. This word, this name, syntyche, some, some preachers pronounce it soon touchy. And what they mean by that is probably one of them was just so touchy that everything that anybody did, they took offense with. And we can be like that, can't we? We can be too easily offended. But we shouldn't be. Because anxiety won't do anything for you. And, and worrying will not do anything for you. One time I had a 
my car full of guys that wanted to go. They were preachers. They wanted to go to Macworld. This was years ago. We went to San Francisco, and I was driving. And I got over there. I couldn't find a parking place. And, man, I started getting anxious. I started, I was like a race car driver. I was like a little NASCAR. I'm driving through those streets trying to find a parking place before anybody else could. And this guy sitting next to me was a guy that I was working with. He was a fellow pastor. And he said, what in the world is wrong with you? Because he had never seen me like this before (laughs) in a state of panic. Sounds silly, doesn't it? I would, use an, I would use an illustration in your life, but I don't know them yet. <laughs> but I'm sure you've experienced the same thing. And this is what he tells us to do. This is the solution. It's found in verse 6. Look at verse 6. You should underline this and come back to it when, you, when you're trying to figure out anxiety in your own life. He says, be anxious for nothing, which means quite literally, do not be continuously anxious for anything. Now, if if you get in an automobile accident or somebody's come screeching at you at 60 miles an hour, you should be anxious. That's a help. It'll make you act. But don't be continually anxious about anything. And then he says, in order, the way to to, uh, do that is these three things. He mentions three things. Notice, prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. These three words mean this. The word prayer, this particular word that's translated prayer, means worshipful prayer. It's prayer that extols God. And so you, it causes you to come to your senses and realize, wait a minute, God is in control. He's the God of the universe. He's the one who controls my life, and so you praise him. It means to lift up words of praise and, and adoration to God. And then supplication, it means to communicate your felt needs. Now you're thinking, how am I going to do that in a split second? I, I still remember I was driving down street in Fresno, and I, got, I, hit a, I hit something in the road, and I spun around twice in this little car I was driving, and, was, and the car was full of kids. I was a kid. And uh, I was scared to death of what was going to happen. But I prayed as I was spinning. I think I was actually going in the wrong, backwards when I said, oh God, please save us. But he heard me. So you don't need an hour to pray this kind of prayer, but the point is you recognize he's in control and that's the one who you apply to, you, you communicate with. Supplication means you express your felt need. What is it that I need you to do for me? And then thanksgiving is an expression of faith. Thank you, Father that you are in control of my life and my circumstances. This seems awfully bad to me, and yet I know that you're in control and I can trust you. All of us have discovered those times when we thought God allowed something in our life that we thought was gonna ruin us in some way, and then we discover this is one of the best things that ever happened to me. Because he got my attention and I began to trust him like I'd never trusted him before. And he says, here's the consequence in verse 7. You'll have peace that, that we cannot produce or explain. It passes understanding. That means you can't produce this kind of peace. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound. This is Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace while you are believing. While you are believing. As you're believing, God will produce in you joy and peace. And may it abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the best things about anxiety is it drives us to prayer. It should. Now, it could just drive you to insanity, you know, just craziness and and, uh, expressing how fearful you are. But what God's design is, is to drive you to him, to draw you to him, the only one who has absolute power and authority over all things. But anxiety... Can, can produce rifts between God's people. And what we need to do is realize how important it is for us to have peace in the body of Christ in order to be effective. And you, you all understand we're on a mission, right? The, I've mentioned this many times, but the Bible clearly says that a local church exists in order to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That includes the fact that we are a worshiping community, that we worship the true and living God, and we want to... We want to invite other people to come and experience the same thing. But we're on mission. 
We're on mission to the, to the world, to take the gospel to the world. Jesus told his disciples, all of you know Matthew 28, 18 through 20, uh, when Jesus, this is after the resurrection, before he leaves his disciples, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And because of that, because that's true, this is what you should do. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Now these are, these are 12 guys. 11, there's only 11 now. There's 11 guys. And I mean, they're fishermen. They're common folk. They're not world travelers. And he's telling them, go and make disciples of all the nations. I was talking to Mike Shout the other day, and he, ta- he just got back from India, and he was telling me that he went over there to see a church planting organization that was booming. There's been 200 churches planted and thriving, and he wanted to go see it. And he says, one of the things that's really interesting is that they're very high on James, the apostle James. You know why? Because James went to India. Here is this, this man, James, who had never been outside of his own land, and he ends up in India taking the gospel to them. And now there is a huge number. This one church planning movement has 200 churches. Now, to be honest with you, the churches are about 15 to 20 people because they're house churches. And in India, a house church would be more like a hut church. It's just a little village church, a group of believers who get together and pray and read the word together and talk about the... The, the teachings of the apostles and pray together and appeal to God to meet their needs together. You know, like daily food. And it, it, it's been booming, but they're so grateful for James. And I thought, man, that's amazing, isn't it? Jesus told the disciples, go and make disciples of all the nations and James goes to India. Baffling, huh? They all went places. In fact, if you read about Paul's travels, you look on a map. Somebody showed me a map a while ago of, of, of Paul's missionary travels. You look at it, he keeps going further and further and further west. He goes out west, he comes back, reports to his home church in Antioch, goes back again, comes back, goes back again. And he's praying the whole time that God would, would give him the opportunity to go as far as Spain with the gospel. He wanted to keep taking it further and further and further. And some of us are worried that our neighbors might find out that we're Christians. Wouldn't that be a shame? And yet he calls us to take the gospel to the world and make disciples of people. And this is why when he puts you out there and sends you places, you need to understand that's why he does it. He puts people in your path because he wants you to be an instrument in his hands. There's a book written called Instrument in the Redeemer's Hands, and that's what you are. You're an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. This is how the gospel goes out. It goes out by common folks like us who take the gospel to people that God puts in our path, and they come to faith in Christ. And so that's what we're supposed to do. The next problem he deals with in verses 8 and 9, and again, is this idea of mindsets, and that is conflicting mindsets. He says, for example, in Proverbs 4.23, which you've, I know have memorized, some of you, Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart above all else because it determines the course of your life. From it flow the springs of life. Your heart. Now, if you want to know what, if you don't want to know what that means, read the, read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, if, if a man lusts in his heart, After someone who's not his wife, he's committed adultery already in his heart. God's interested in the heart. Jesus said, he quoted from the Old Testament because the Old Testament prophet said, Isaiah says to the people of Israel, you draw near me with your lips, but your heart's far from me. But what God wants is your heart. He wants you to draw close with your heart. He wants you to believe on him from the depths of who you are. And so he gives these corrective lenses of gospel truth. How can I think, how can I be gospel-centered in my thinking? Well, this is what he says. He says, first of all, think about things that are true. What's that? Everything that conforms to the gospel. That's what's true. 
Galatians 2, 5, he says, we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Paul was talking about he was fighting those who tried to come into the churches of Galatia and, and turn them away from the simplicity of the gospel. That it's Christ who stood in your place and paid for your sins and it's faith in him that saves you. Or in Galatians chapter 5, verse 7, he says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? That is the gospel. The gospel is truth. And then he says, and think of things that are honorable. That is worthy of respect. Think about things that are right, which is defined by God, his righteousness. The righteousness by which he has saved you. And then he said, think on things that are pure, contrasted with those whose motives are impure. And Paul talks about how there are those who preach the gospel that have impure motives. In fact, listen to this. He's telling the Philippians this. He said, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. They're wanting to make me feel bad because I'm in prison and they're out there preaching the gospel because that's what I would be doing. And they're just doing it to make me angry and jealous. He says, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So we are to think on things that are pure, being purely motivated, and then finally good repute. That is conduct that's, that's approved by all people. Everybody knows that's the good thing to do. That's the right thing to do. I heard about this group of Christians. It was just a group of like a house fellowship, we would call And there was one of their neighbors that her husband abandoned her and her four children, and then the house caught on fire and burned down. And she was totally without any resources. And the people in this group who wanted to be a witness to her, had been trying to witness to her, they got together and said, what would Jesus do in this situation? What has Jesus done for us? And what can we do for her? So they pooled their resources and they got her a house. They got her resources. They put her back into a home with her children. And she asked, why would they they do this? And other people asked, why would you do this? Because that's what Jesus did for us. What has Jesus done for you? What has he done for you? Has anybody ever asked you that? What's Jesus ever done for you? Why are you such a radical Christian? Why do, you, why do you give money to promote the gospel? Why do you get around those Christians and encourage them and so forth? It's because this is what Jesus Christ has done for us. When I was hungry, he fed me. When I was thirsty, he gave me something to drink, a fountain of living water. When I was lonely, he gave himself to me, gave me his fellowship. You know, the mindset of the flesh is the mindset that, that acts as though God does not even exist. The mindset of the flesh is a mindset of selfishness. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8 about the mindset of the flesh. You understand what I'm saying with mindset? It's attitude, way of thinking, perspective, worldview, the way I view the world. This is the mindset of the flesh. And all the word flesh means is it is a human being who's fallen and independent of God and on his own. And this is what Paul says. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, that is, they have the mindset of the spirit, they set their minds on the things of the spirit. For the mindset of the flesh is death. And what he means by that is dead to God. It's as though God doesn't even exist. It's death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. Not only am I alive to God, I'm at peace with God because of what he's done for me in Christ Jesus. Because the mindset of the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not yet, it does not subject itself to the commandments of God. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They have no desire to please God. But then he says this. This is that thing again. It's who you are before what you should do. This is what he says. However, you are not in the flesh. He's talking to believers in Rome. You are not in the flesh. But in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. 
So the Spirit of Christ dwells in all of us. And by the way, the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Christ are the same person. He's called several things. He has about 50 different titles. He's the Spirit of God. If you read a King James Bible, it's, he's the Holy Ghost. That's the same person. You have the person of the Holy Spirit living in you. And this is what, and he is the one who produces the mindset of the Spirit so that you can see through the lens of Christ as you look at people. And he says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to him. And then he who raised Christ Jesus, that is the Father, who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. What he's talking about there isn't that you're going to be raised after you die, which you are as a believer, but it means like right now, today, the Spirit of God is going to empower you to actually respond in obedience to the Father. He's going to empower you to obey the Father. That's why it's important to learn what the Father has commanded us and what the Son has commanded us because the Spirit will empower you to obey His commandments. Like, love your enemies. Forgive. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who want to do you harm. You've got you to be thinking, you must be crazy. No, I didn't give those commandments. Jesus gave those commandments. And he promised that his Holy Spirit would empower you to do that very thing. One of the hardest things in all the world to do in a local church is get to two believers to be reconciled once they've had a dispute. Because what we tend to do is we think in the flesh. We put on the mindset of the flesh and think the best way to handle that person is to stay at a distance from them. You know, that's a safe thing, right? You don't mess with them. But what the Bible says is we are a team, a gospel team, and we must be at peace with each other. And if we're not at peace with each other, we're not going to have joy. In fact, remember what Jesus said? He's speaking to Jews who are still offering sacrifices. This was before his death. And he said, when you go to offer your sacrifice and there you remember that you have a brother who has something against you, leave the sacrifice, go and find that brother and make peace with him and then come back and make your offering. You see the priority? The priority is peace with brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I guess I could give you the assignment. If you're at war with anybody among the people of God, your assignment this week is to make peace with them. Here's how Jesus made peace. Now, you know, you used to be alienated from God. And the way that Jesus made peace for you was he removed the offense because that's what caused the alienation. So he removes the offense by standing in your place and experiencing what you should have experienced when he died on the cross in order to remove this alienation between you and God. This is what it cost Jesus to save you. Isn't that amazing? What foreign kind of love is this? It's the love of God. That's what it is. It's the love of God. I, your responsibility in this is this. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. Paul says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful to the destruction of fortresses. Then he goes on to explain what fortresses are. They're ways of thinking. And guess what he, he explains? They're satanic ways of thinking. I'll show him, I'll show her what it feels like. That's satanic. And so he says, but the weapons that we use are to bring those down, to get rid of those so that we don't, we don't have that kind of thinking, that stinking thinking in our minds. We begin to think through the gospel. So he says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, just after this, he says, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his thoughts. His schemes, it's translated. But the word schemes is the word thoughts, naimata, which it means Satan suggests the way to think. You know how you, you know some of the attitudes you have in your mind right now about certain people? It very may will be that it's Satan who has made that suggestion to you. And so what Paul says is we have to be very careful now, we have an example of this. If you, do you remember the, the, 
the division between Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas went on a mission trip together, the first mission trip. They come back. And what had happened on that trip was Barnabas's nephew, Mark, John Mark, who wrote the book of Mark, he failed. He bailed out on him. He came home and left them in the lurch. He was supposed to be there to help them. And so Paul, when they got ready for the next missionary journey, Barnabas said, I want to take Mark with us. And Paul says, no way. He's failed us once. I'm not going to go with him again. And so Paul went his way, and Barnabas went his way. But get this. Paul ultimately forgave Mark and reconciled with him. Listen to this. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, Paul says, in verse 9 of this chapter we're looking at. The example of this is in, in Acts 15 when, when Paul says, I'm not, I don't want anything to do with Mark. He's, he's going to cave in on us. And then in his last letter, the very last letter Paul wrote was 2 Timothy. He was executed shortly after that. And in that letter, the very last letter, he says this. He says, only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark. He's writing to Timothy, and he says, pick up Mark and bring him with you because he is useful to me in service. He's, he's in prison in Rome. He's about to die, and he says, I need somebody to help me. Would you bring Mark? Isn't it wonderful that God forgives I have a really good friend who's failed miserably and uh, he's in a mess, just a total mess. And it breaks my heart. And I'm trying to figure out, God, why did you allow this to happen? But I forgot who I was talking to. Oh, this is the God who restores people, isn't it? It's the God who takes people off the ash heap and causes them to sit with princes, the Old Testament says. In other words, he gives them an elevated position. He saves people and he restores people. And that's what he loves to do. In uh, 2 Timothy, again, Paul's last book, he instructs Timothy this way. He tells him, you need to be really careful, uh, Timothy, because you're going to run into some really difficult times. And he says, you have to learn how to have gentleness with people who are really strong-willed instead of getting in their face and telling them off. Listen to this. And he says, you do this, you, you be gentle with them and they, so that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been captive to, to, by him to do his will. They've been ensnared by Satan. You know what the snare was? It was unforgiveness. It's unforgiveness. You ever have that problem where somebody sinned against you and you just cannot bring yourself to forgive them? You can't restore the relationship. And he says, that's satanic. That's one of those fortresses that Satan wants to build a, a bridgehead in your life where he can work in you and get you to think in a certain way. We are forgiven people. We are a fellowship of the forgiven and a fellowship of the forgiving. See, the reason we know how to forgive is because we've been forgiven. Um, I told you recently that uh, John Piper has kind of modified Jack Miller's little saying, cheer up, you're worse than you think. God's grace is greater than you ever thought. He says it this way. You're more sinful than you think, Piper says, but you're loved more than you can imagine. More than you can imagine. You're loved. And Jesus has loved you by dying for you. Giving his life for you. Is he going to ever let something that will destroy you touch your life? No. He may let something touch your life that you think is going to destroy you. But he's in control. He's in control. And the bottom line of this is, is this. We have to be at peace with each other because we're a gospel team. You, you probably never thought of that, but that's what we are. We are a gospel team because we're bound together as a group of believers who've joined together to be a part of the same church. 
same local church. And so we're a gospel team. So what should I do if somebody talks to me and, and they're interested in hearing about Christ, what's the best thing for me to do? It's to get with some fellow believers and get, bring them along and us talk to him or her and with each other about the truth of who Christ is. I love the fact that God has equipped every single one of you, every believer in this room, you've been equipped by God with a spiritual gift that empowers you to dispense God's grace in a unique way, differently than I would. But he has equipped you to dispense his grace. And so the wonderful thing is, we are children of God. We are saints. We are the redeemed. And therefore, we ought to live like it. We ought to live our lives like it. We ought to treat each other like it. When you're dealing with the people of God, you're dealing with the children of God. Uh, Jack Hall has a a son-in-law who I've watched play uh, softball. Carrie Hunter. If you've ever seen him play softball, it's the scariest thing in the world. This guy weighs, he looks like he probably weighs about 220 pounds or maybe it's 250, but he's in shape. And I was watching him run the bases and I thought, man, that guy's a freight train. If you were to get in front of him, he would literally blow you away. And yet he's got a gentle heart. See, God can capture our hearts. He can capture the heart of any of you And he's able to use you the way he wants to use you for his glory. He can use you as a spokesperson. He can use you as a member of a gospel team, which you're on, whether you like it or not. You say, I didn't sign up for that. Well, sorry, God signed you up. God signed you up. You're a member of the gospel team. So if you're fighting with another member of the gospel team, you need to make peace. And do it today. Don't wait around. Do it today because it's urgent that we function as a gospel team and we can't do it if we're not at peace with each other. So let me pray for your peace. Father, we we bow our hearts before you. We thank you so much for the truth of who we are in Christ Jesus. We uh, admit to you, Father, there are times when we don't feel like it and we don't act like it, but we are. And so we pray that you would sober us open our minds to the truth of who we are and help us to live out the reality of who we are in Christ Jesus. Thank you for giving us this assignment to bear witness of Christ to those that you put into our lives. What a privilege that is. It's such a privilege to talk about Jesus to those who don't know him. And so we pray you'd give us many, many opportunities this week as a a local church, Father. And help us to lean on each other. I pray that we would be brave enough to call on other believers to help us to pray and to talk to people about Christ. I ask this, that this very week we would see your hand at work in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.